Well, we read most of 2 Kings 23. And uh, it's a long chapter. It's a long chapter to stand for, isn't it? Any of you kids get tired standing that long? Nobody's, nobody's tired this morning, I guess. Can you imagine when Moses called the people together and they read the words of the law and they all stood? Oh, that's more than one chapter. That would have been a long time standing and listening to the words of God. So, your fathers stood for a lot longer than you did. As a matter of fact, we don't have to go all the way back to the time of Moses. It used to be that the only people who would sit during church were the old and the weak. There weren't pews until recently. We got chairs even better than pews in some ways. How many of you prefer chairs? Anybody? A few. I, I like pews that personally, but God said, I see those hands. Josiah called the people back to an older form of worship that was more stringent and strict. And it wasn't about standing, right? It was about honoring the Word of God. And that's why we stand, is just to honor the Word of God. And when they found the book of the law, he read it to the people and and he said, we're going to do it. He honored it. Isn't it a beautiful thing, seeing Josiah's reforms, just like his great-grandfather Hezekiah, leading the people to worship God the way that God had commanded. Leading the people away from worship of idols. What a glorious thing it was. What an amazing record it is for us. And so you had to stand for five minutes to listen to it all. That's because of how glorious it was. You can't describe it quickly. Think about all that he did, all that he managed to accomplish. He works to stamp out idolatry in Judah. How? Well, he destroys the idols. And there were a lot of them. He cuts them down. He burns them up. He gets rid of things that people had used for the worship of these idols. You remember it said that he got rid of the horses. There were these horses. We've never heard about them before, right? But we've, we get these little, little pictures of the things that he did. He got rid of those. He got rid of this other thing. He took 
the altar apart down, although I'm getting ahead of myself because that's not Judah, right? That's Israel. <clears throat> but can I just jump straight to that and be like, have you ever watched a machine grinding up rock? I know somebody has. I know somebody here who makes pieces for great big machines to grind up rock. Invents them, in fact. And it's, it's a pretty remarkable sight when you watch a machine grinding up rock. But you know what's more remarkable than a great big machine grinding up rock? It's when you don't have a great big machine and you decide you're going to grind up rock. Then what you have is a sledgehammer. Have any of you ever tried to break a rock with a hammer before? I see those hands. I've done it. I lived on the top of a creek that was full of geodes. You know what geodes are? They're rocks on the outside, beautiful quartz crystal on the inside, if you're lucky. But you don't know until you break it open. Of course, I never did it with a hammer. I mean, I only did it with a hammer a couple of times. Most of the time, I was just down at the creek and find a geode, smash it into the ground, see if it broke. If it didn't, pick it up and try again. Smash it into the ground harder. You got to find a nice, solid rock. You know what would happen? Sometimes it would break. Sometimes it would break the great, big, solid rock you were slamming it into. You have to find another great, big, solid rock to slam it into. And if it broke open, sometimes it was beautiful on the inside, hollowed out with gorgeous crystals growing in towards the center. And if you had one of those and you smashed it to the, to the ground, you know what happened? It wasn't pretty anymore. You obliterated it. Sometimes it was just filled with ugly dirt that had filled up on the inside and it wasn't pretty. But either way, and sometimes it was solid quartz and those ones were the ones that you just, you could smash that into the ground 10, 15, 20, 30 times before it might split open. It wasn't particularly pretty, it was just solid rock. It was hard work it is hard work to break a rock. Josiah decided that these rocks that had been used as an altar down in Bethel, and you remember that's where Job, Jeroboam, verse 15, made Israel sin. He broke down that altar. He demolished its stones. He did not just break them. It says he ground them to dust. That's hard work. We're not making gravel. We're going finer than gravel. We're not making pea gravel. We're going to dust with a great big pile of rocks, an altar. Josiah was pretty serious. He was pretty intense with his reforms, wasn't he? 
Have you ever been intense about repenting? Have you ever been serious about it? Taken drastic measures? Josiah did that over and over and over and over again. He doesn't just destroy the idols. He knows that's been done before. It's time for something bigger and better than that. He's going to destroy the places of worship where the idols had been set up. So that nobody wants to come back and set up idols anymore. He defiles those places so that people won't want to go there. He does kind of the equivalent of taking our nuclear and heavy metal waste and just kind of sprinkling it around. You want to worship here? I don't think you want to worship here anymore. Nobody wants to go there. Now I say that equivalent because what he did was he used human bones, right? He defiled places by using human bones. At that time, human bones were seen as really nasty. You wouldn't want to see them. I can't use that today because we hang human bones all over the place for Halloween. We just got done doing that. Kind of disturbing, actually. But he takes human bones and he spreads them around. and He wants the people not just to know the idols are gone. The places where they worship the idols aren't even available to them anymore. And of course, Josiah is smart by doing that, isn't he? Because isn't it true that we have places that lead us into temptation? Where we've committed sin and it reminds us of it and we don't have the defenses against it. We go there and we want to go back into sin. So we avoid it. We don't go there. Josiah is removing temptation. Getting rid of the places of sin. Even places that had a great, glorious tradition of beauty and excellence. Such as the undoubtedly splendid places built by Solomon. You think Solomon did... Halfway building anywhere when silver was as valuable as rocks at that time? I doubt it. But of course Solomon had built some things that had been used for 
the place of worship for three different idols, three different false gods. Verse 13, for Ashtoreth of the Sidonians, for Chemosh of Moab, and for Milcom of Ammon. And what were all three of those? Abominations. The gods, the false gods, the idols, they were abominations from the surrounding lands. Solomon fell into sin and built places, high places, outside of Jerusalem. I'm sure they were glorious. And what's interesting is the way that the high places merge and meld worship of idols with worship of God. It's kind of free-flowing throughout the text. You've clearly got those high places associated with these abominations, these false gods, right? But you also have it clear throughout Kings that At the high places, they also worshipped Yahweh. So some were probably devoted to Yahweh, and some were probably devoted to other gods. Some might have both happening. Some might go back and forth, depending on how holy, how much reform had taken place. Right? But remember how many kings went by without the high places being taken away. There were still people sacrificing, burning incense on the high places. Josiah removes the leaders from those places. The people that you would go to to help you with your worship. So he gets rid of the idols, he obliterates the places. He takes down and defiles them. And then he removes the leaders, the priests. He is not content for the people to say, okay, yeah, Yahweh is God. And then to proceed with false worship, right? He wants the idolatry done away with, and then he wants the worship of Yahweh to be purified and, and holy the way that God commanded it. The very way that God commanded the people to worship him is how he is intent on seeing the people worship God. He even tries to stamp out idolatry in Israel. That's where we have that beautiful scene of crushing rocks into dust. What else does he do down there, though? 
he honors the prophets of the Lord, the prophets of Yahweh, that had warned and prophesied against the altar in Bethel and said, one day, human bones are going to be burned on this altar. And of course, that's what Josiah did, right? How long ago was that prophecy made? Hundreds of years before. Long time back in Kings, right? After all, it was long before Hezekiah. The kingdom's been divided for a, for a long time at this point. But they have a monument there. They have a monument down in Israel, or rather, up, up in Israel. They have a monument in Israel. And what is that monument for? That monument is for these prophets that had prophesied against this altar. That tells you something very important about Israel. And it's something that we've seen throughout Kings, so it's not going to be a surprise to any of you. But it's remarkable when you get to it here. Because remember, by this point, not only has the kingdom been divided for a long time, and ever since the division, which goes all the way back to right after Solomon, right? How many kings have come and gone since then? It goes all the way back to then. It's not just the kingdom is divided, but Israel is gone. They've been taken. You notice it doesn't say that Josiah had, uh, had been in a fight to control the nearby areas in Israel. It just says he goes to Israel. Why? Because there's no Israel army anymore. Right? Israel's been taken off into captivity and then dispersed among the peoples. It's gone. Now all you have there is Samaritans. And so he goes down in and he sees... The altar is still there, but also from about as long back as the altar, the prophecy was made. And whenever this monument went up, it's still there. So what does it reveal to us? There has never been a time when God's testimony wasn't there against that altar. The people of Israel had it the entire time that they had that altar. Remember how many times we see prophets sent warnings against the king? The Israelites always had the gift of God's calling them to repent, to turn away from this false worship that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, started them down that path, and they never did. They never repented. 
Why were they unwilling to repent? Why did Jeroboam set it up in the first place? Because he was unwilling to have the kingdom reunited. That's it. It was political. The reason that the Israelites would never actually worship Yahweh was because they were politically committed to remaining independent, separate from Judah. And therefore, their religion had to change. Now, there might be any number of things in your life that you are committed to that therefore you say, my worship of the Lord will be subordinate to that. I don't know, I don't know what they might be. But if you go back 60 years, 70 years in this nation, there were many, many Christians that were committed to a political reality of racism, of separation of blacks and whites, and all else bowed the knee to that, including their religion. And so Christians insisted that that was Christianity. What do we insist is Christianity today? The Israelites said, you know, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt about the golden calves with the altar in Bethel, right? But God had a permanent continual testimony to them. God has not left us without His Word. He's given us this testimony that teaches us of the dangers that we can that we can fall into sin through commitment to some political reality above worship of Him in spirit and in truth, right? And so, Josiah sees the monument. What's that? Do I need to tear that down? You understand? What, what place of worship is this? Because he is an iconoclast, isn't he? He's going around breaking and destroying everything. Anything that has a hint of worship. Anything that's ever been worshipped. Anything that has to do with idolatry. It's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. What is this one? Oh, well, that's a monument to a prophet that came from Judah. Remember, that's his kingdom. And that prophet that came from Judah said that you were going to do this eventually. 
Oh, well, that can stay. For now. But if any of you start worshiping, I'm coming back. You see, Josiah, he's not willing for anything of this idolatry to remain. And so, the people of Israel knew. They, they remembered what that monument was for. There it is. It's a monument. Now, what do you think? Centuries have passed, right? Since this prophecy was made. What do you think they thought about that prophecy and about that monument? We know they never repented. We know they never took it seriously enough to actually stop. The worship at Bethel, at that altar, never quit. So what do you think they thought of that monument? What do you think they said about that monument? Why do you think they still knew what that monument was for? Were there some faithful people? A remnant who reminded and told their children and passed it down from generation to generation. Somebody had to tell the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and on and on and on and on, right? Somebody had to do that. Was it a remnant? It might have been. You know what else it might have been though? How do you get a monument like that in the first place when the worship has never been ended? It's entirely possible that the whole thing was ironic and mocking of the prophet and of the prophecy. Oh yeah. Remember that guy who said that we were, they were going to burn bones on it? It hasn't happened yet. No, it still hasn't happened. 300 years and counting. There's no evidence that the people of Israel took it seriously, is there? Somebody had to pass down that knowledge. And it's a, it's a remarkable thing that, that that testimony is still there. Just like it's remarkable that we still have God's Word. We still have this testimony to the fact that Christ came and died. And He's coming back. <laughs> he hasn't come back yet. I don't know how long you're going to keep believing that. been an awfully long time that he's supposedly coming back. Yeah, they're going to burn bones on this, uh-huh. Let me know when it happens. I'll be waiting. You see how easy it is for us to begin to doubt that God's word will actually come true. Especially when mockers mock. 
And you know they mocked. Regardless of how the information was passed down from generation to generation, you know the mockers mocked. Josiah honors that prophet. Let no one disturb his bones. Finally, the word of the Lord is fulfilled. Do we not desire that the word of the Lord be fulfilled? Set aside all of Josiah's reform and everything else and just think, there was a prophecy made. A prophet sent by the Lord and he said, altar, altar. They're going to burn human bones on you. And you see the false worship continue and continue and continue and continue. And it's re, it's, you, you can't help but see it continue because the author of Kings repeats it over and over and over and over. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Yeah, we've heard of him. You've reminded us over and over and over and over again. They continued to worship. And so, don't you just want to see it finally happen? That the altar will be destroyed? Don't you just want to see it defiled. God said it was going to happen. Oh, Lord, let it happen soon. Let it happen quickly. Let it happen now. Is this not why we pray, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let him come quickly. Don't we want to see the fulfillment of God's word come? Don't we want to see it happen in our lifetime? But do we? Or are we like Israel? Yeah, we know it's coming. Yeah, we've heard. Hopefully not while I'm alive. I want him to come back now. Wouldn't that be great? But would it? When he returns, he's going to come as judge of the nations. When he returns, he's going to crush his enemies with a rod of iron. When he returns, he's going to separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And so he's been merciful in waiting, hasn't he? Isn't that what the Bible says? That he's not slow as some of us would count slowness? He does not desire that any should perish, and so he waits out of mercy. 
Let me come back to that point in a minute. But Josiah, he's getting rid of idolatry in Judah. He's doing absolutely anything he can think of to get rid of it. He goes down, not content with Judah, but Israel is going to also be have all of its idolatry that it was based on as a nation removed. He also reforms worship of Yahweh. Remember we talked about the high places and how confusing it is where they High places where they burned incense to Yahweh or to Chemosh or what, right? He removes the high places to the Lord. He demotes those priests, but he provides a living for them. So they ate bread. They basically became like Levites. No longer allowed to do the priestly work because they had been doing the worship of the Lord inappropriately, right? Leading the people into sin. He cleanses the temple. And it needed cleansing, didn't it? Yikes, you read about what they were doing there. Nobody wants to think about male cult prostitutes. He removes the mediums and spiritists. And then he celebrates the Passover. And what a celebration it was, right? So this is Josiah's life work. He's been doing it. Remember he became king? Uh, how old was he? I always get it confused. Yeah. Eight? He wasn't six, he was eight. Okay, that's what I always get can never remember. He's been doing it for years and years and years. This doesn't happen overnight, does it? Okay, now we're going outside of Jerusalem. Okay, let's start with the horses. Oh no, that was right outside the temple. Let's start with Solomon's high places that he made. Okay, they're right outside the city. Let's get rid of those first. Okay. Finish the high places outside Jerusalem. Well, let's go further. Okay, let's, now let's take care of the mediums and the spiritists. Okay, now let's go down to Israel. All right, now let's... And, and he keeps going and going and going, doing, doing, doing. And what does he end with? What does it end with? It ends with the description of the celebration of the Passover. And what is the Passover? The Passover is when they celebrate the fact that when they were slaves in Egypt, the angel of death came. And he killed the firstborn in every home. But when he came to the houses of the Israelites who had put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, he passed over and he did not kill the firstborn in those homes. 
His judgment, His hand of judgment was stayed. It was held back. Right? This is the celebration of the Passover. And then, what does it say? The Lord did not turn his judgment away. This is the build-up that the whole chapter is working its way to. The reforms, the whole list, all that he accomplished, the holiness of his worship, the beauty of the celebration of the Passover, it builds and builds and builds to this grand finale where God doesn't say, okay, I relent. But God says, I do not relent. My judgment is sure. It is coming. I will cast off Jerusalem, he says. I will remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. The city which I have chosen, the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. Getting rid of all of it. Destroying every last bit of it. And that's, that's what you get to at the end. After the Passover. The Passover was the celebration of the fact that God passed his hand of judgment over and did not. And then it says they celebrated the Passover and God then didn't pass over. Why? It says, verse 26, The Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. This is a shocking conclusion to the list of Josiah's holy reforms. What kind of king was he? Verse 25 describes him. It says, but before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Can't ask for a higher commendation. It's not like it got to the end of the reforms that he did and said, you know, but he didn't really mean it. Or, but he gave himself to such and such a sin. Or, you know, no, it just says he was great. He was fantastic. So, it is a shocking conclusion. But remember last week, remember that Josiah was given a promise. 
that it wouldn't happen during his days. God kept his promise, didn't he? In the end, Josiah dies. And God has kept his promise that his judgment will be delayed. Because of Josiah's holiness and work and calling the people to live in repentance. But it is only delayed. The wrath of God at the sins of his people, led by Manasseh, is still present. We have a choice before us. We can look at the delay of God's wrath, the delay of the fulfillment of His word, His promise that His judgment is coming. And we can live like the Israelites, or we can live like Josiah. The Israelites never cared. They knew it was coming. Either they didn't believe it or they didn't care. They didn't fear the Lord. Josiah heard the law of God and he feared the Lord. And God answered by delaying his wrath. And it was glorious. And so... How long might it be before God keeps his promise, fulfills his word? We don't know, right? There's a lot of people who've tried to figure it out and decided that they knew. But the Bible is clear that we don't know and we're not going to know, right? It'll come like a thief in the night. So we don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be in centuries. We don't know. That's okay. As long as we do not begin to reject him as he delays. Because his mercy and his wrath are not in conflict with each other in this story, are they? You see them both perfectly. His great mercy is what means that Josiah doesn't see this wrath being poured out on the nation while he's alive. His great mercy is why the Israelites had a permanent testimony, a monument to the fact that God's wrath is coming. Could you ask for a better mercy from the Lord? Right in the heart of Bethel? His mercy is the fact that his word was fulfilled and they saw the burns of men burned on that altar and then it ground to dust before their eyes. These are all the mercies of the Lord. Does it mean that he has no wrath against the evil that his people have been giving themselves to? No, it fits perfectly. 
How long can we depend on the holiness of our fathers to keep God's wrath at bay? You can't. You have to repent. What will happen when Josiah is gone? We come to it right now. Well, not right now. Next. And it's just like that. The author just speeds through the rest of the history and it's just, they're done. So who are we going to be like? Josiah, who fears the Lord and takes the worship of the Lord seriously and says, the Lord above all else and his commands before anything else. Or Israel that says, yeah, it might come. It hasn't come yet. 